This is a companion podcast to my Fox Nation special, Riddle, The Search for James R. Hoffa. Be sure to go to foxnation.com to watch the whole show. And now, Riddle, the podcast. Hi, I'm Eric Sean, and welcome to Riddle, the podcast, my in-depth conversations with those involved in our Fox Nation special, Riddle, the search for James R. Hoffa, and my Fox News reporting. Thanks for listening today. For the next 36 minutes, you'll hear from Dan Maldea. Dan is perhaps the nation's most prominent Hoffa expert. He started reporting on the Teamsters and Hoffa when he was in his early 20s. You know, he was beaten up for doing so in the process. And in 1978, he wrote the landmark book, The Hoffa Wars. Teamsters, rebels, politicians, and the mob. But first, let me get you quickly up to speed. Jimmy Hoffa, he disappeared on July 30th, 1975, from the parking lot of the Marcus Red Fox restaurant in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. It was believed he was headed to a meeting with Detroit mob boss Anthony Tony Jack Giacalone, a New Jersey Genovese captain and Teamster official Tony Tony Pro Provenzano. Well, in 2001, Buffalino crime family member and Teamster official Frank Sharon, an admitted mafia killer, he told me he shot Hoffa in a house in Detroit. I met him as part of his proposed biography, which became the book I Heard You Paint Houses. In 2004, we went to that house. We pulled up the tiles on the hardwood floor, and we actually found blood. The pattern fit Sharon's story precisely. The greatest amount of the possible evidence was in front of the foyer closet door, where Sharon says Hoffa hit his head on the floor. Seven drops went down the hallway to the kitchen, where Sharon says Hoffa's body was dragged out by two accomplices and was cremated. The FBI did find blood. They said one drop was inconclusive in terms of the DNA match. Another one was to an unknown male. There was no match to Hoffa which is why I am calling on the government to release all of the Hoffa FBI investigation files fully now. Let the Hoffa family and the American public know what's been secret for so long and that we have been denied knowing and retest the blood evidence we found using the latest DNA technology. Here now, Dan Modea. Dan Modea, thank you. You have spent decades of your life covering this story. You have spent decades of your life covering the Teamsters, and you wrote the landmark book, The Hoffa Wars, Teamsters, Rebels, Politicians, and the Mob back in 1978. Bring us back first to, you're about a 20-something-year-old young kid, and you decide to go after and expose and investigate and report on the Teamsters. I was 25, and I had been uh, investigating the Teamsters for about eight months before Hoffa disappeared. Uh, I was concentrating on the Teamsters Pension Fund, and then I got a call from, I had done an eight-part series for this small newspaper in Ohio, which is where I lived, and um, I got a call from John Quitney from the Wall Street Journal, the great investigative journalist at the Journal, and he said, listen, I read your little eight-part series about the Teamsters Pension Fund, and I was fascinated by it. I'm thinking about doing a three-part series for the Journal myself. Could you help me out? And I said, of course. And so I helped John, and John came out with his piece 
on July 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, three-part series. But just was with my little piece, no one really cared about the Teamsters and the mob. But one week after John's series appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. And now everybody was interested in it. So John called me as soon as it was the news was released that Hoffa disappeared. And we came to this very, very logical conclusion that Hoffa was alive and well and up in Eagle River, Wisconsin, <laughs> at this hunting lodge owned by Alan Dorfman, who was the fiduciary manager of the Teamsters Pension Fund at one time, convicted, out of jail, close friends with Jimmy Hoffa. And so John and I flew up to Eagle River, Wisconsin, and made this very embarrassing check to f- discover that Hoffa was not at all there. In fact, that Alan Dorfman was in Rome at the time with a very solid alibi. So I, John went back to New York to take all the grief he was going to take from his colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. I went to Detroit, and all I had was a credit card and a, um, uh, a, a gas card or something like that in my wallet. And I grabbed a cab, and I went to the Red Fox restaurant where Hoffa was last seen. And when I walked in, I saw Irving R. Levine, the great mm-hmm. uh, economics labor reporter for NBC News, walk by, and he went down to a phone bank. And I went down to him, and I was looking at him, and he was looking at me, and he said, can I help you? And I said, I said, you need me. And he says, I need you. What do I need you for? And he says, I need you. you need me for the Hoffa disappearance, because that's why you're here in Detroit. And he says, you know something about the case? And I said, I, you know, I know whatever you need to know about the Teamsters and the mob. And he said, are you that graduate student from Kent State who was working with Quitney? And I said, that's me. And he said, what do you do it for lunch? So I wound up working with NBC News from day one, really, when this thing was announced. And um, and that the first thing I went to was I got a source who told me about this goon squad that was running around shaking down trucking companies and that a portion of this goon squad, which was run by a guy named Roland McMaster, who was very close to Hoffa at one time but then had a very big falling out with him. And at the time Hoffa disappeared, Roland McMaster was at war with uh, with Jimmy Hoffa, and in fact, there had been this series of acts of violence in Local 299, Hoffa's home local in Detroit, which I received information about that McMaster was behind, and I came to a very logical conclusion that whoever was behind the Local 299 violence was behind Hoffa's murder. And then when it became clear that uh, that Hoffa's guys were in fact behind the bombing of Dick Fitzsimmons' car, the bombing of Dave Johnson's cab cruiser. Dick, Dick Fitzsimmons, let me just point out, Fitzsimmons, the, uh, who went on to become head of the Teamsters. Frank Fitzsimmons was, at the time, the head of okay. the Teamsters Union. And he was he was Hoffa's hand-picked successor. But Hoffa was a centralist when he was, as president of the Teamsters Union, he liked to centralize power in his own hands, whereas... When he went to jail and wound up losing, uh, giving up the presidency in 1971, where Frank Fitzsimmons took over, Fitzsimmons started to decentralize the union. And so the local mob had all this jurisdiction within their own little fiefdoms around the country, and they liked Fitzsimmons because they liked that decentralized power. And so as a consequence of that, they wanted to keep Hoffa out of power. They wanted to show him respect, but they wanted to keep him out of power. They liked Fitzsimmons' brand of management. And so they um, they wound up backing Fitzsimmons, and when Hoffa tried to get back into the union, which he was shut out from, and Hoffa had no chance of getting back in. 
into the as president of the Teamsters Union, and he felt double-crossed by some people, and so he started talking. He was talking to grand juries in Detroit. He was talking to congressional committees in Washington. He was talking to journalists. He did a big um, interview with Jerry Stanicky, uh, the great reporter from WXYZ-TV in Detroit for Playboy magazine, in which he was throwing all kinds of accusations around. And I think as a consequence of him talking and shooting his mouth off, I think the decision made that, that it was time to eliminate Jimmy Hoffa. And that was the scene before a, a very important informant stepped forward. And his name was Ralph Picardo. And the fruits of Picardo's information uh, came forward in December of 1975. And what had happened was Steve Andrena, one of the alleged conspirators, co-conspirators in Hoffa's murder, had allegedly gone to see Picardo, who was in prison for 20-some years for a manslaughter conviction. And Picardo was a former driver for Tony Provenzano, so he was very familiar with the Andrettas and Sal and Gabe Bergulio, who were the other alleged co-conspirators, among others. And, um, and during this, this alleged prison visitation, um, uh, Steve allegedly gave Picardo some information about what had happened to Jimmy Hoffa a few days earlier. And that was the basis for... And that was the basis for, as far as I'm FBI? concerned, everything that has happened since. I, I believe Ralph Picardo is the key overall witness in the case, and he was told that Hoffa was murdered. Um, he presumed, but he was not sure, but he presumed, based on his experience with the Provenzano crowd, and the fact that Sal Bergulio had been contracted to kill Hoffa once before, that it was Sal Bergulio who had done the murder himself. Uh, but he, but see, Andretta did not tell him that. What Andretta did tell him was that Hoffa was put into, after his murder, he was put into a 55-gallon drum, he was loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and he was shipped to New Jersey uh, where, he was, where he was buried. And uh, that is what was known coming out of Picardo. So as a consequence, in early December of 1975, Sal Bergoglio, Gabe Bergoglio, Steve Andretta, Tom Andretta, uh, were brought before the grand jury along with Roland McMaster, along with, uh, as I understand it, Frank Sheeran and others. But we were not hit. Frank Sheeran was not on our radar screen at that time. We did not know, we did not know about Frank Sheeran at that time. He was, he was under our radar screen. And then the Hoffax memo came out in January 1976, a month later. But None of us had any access to that until much later. That 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 has the suspects, and we've reported that uh, it lists those that you you mentioned as well as Frank Sharon. Let me exactly, bring including you... McMaster, who I believed was my position on McMaster was that he was responsible for the disposal of the body on the day of the murder. Um, he and his brother-in-law were with Gateway officials uh, with an alibi. Uh, his brother-in-law, uh, Stan Barr, was the uh, was the head of the Gateway Steel Division in Detroit, and um, and again, it was consistent with the information that Picardo was giving. So I focused my investigation on McMaster, who I had focused on since day one after Hoffa disappeared, but then I expanded it to the Bergulios and the Andrettas, all of whom I interviewed exclusively on October 25th, 1976. Let me stop you right there. That is unbelievable. You have met these suspects, uh, 
the only one that we believe is alive of the major suspects, well, two, uh, Chucky O'Brien, who was close to the Hoffa family, and Thomas Andretta. uh, Both pled, uh, well, took the fifth in in, in the grand jury. Uh, Chucky O'Brien is denied publicly involvement. Uh, We have reached out to both. Uh, They do not, while Chucky O'Brien doesn't want to talk, we have not heard so far from Mr. Andretta, who's still alive in his early 80s in Las Vegas. Tell me about the suspects. Right. What had happened was I was um, I was approached to do a pool together story on the Hoffa Grand Jury, the one year anniversary of the Hoffa Grand Jury, and so I was in New Jersey with a partner uh, who was going to write the story with me, and I decided to pick up the phone and call Sal Bergulio. So <laughs> I called Sal Bergulio up at the Union Hall, and he said. Uh, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk to you about the Hoffa disappearance, Mr. Bergoglio. And he said, well, what the hell do you think that I have anything to say about that? And I said, because, Mr. Bergoglio, you've neither been arrested nor indicted, and yet everyone is blaming for you for this murder, and I think the government might be violating your civil rights. Well, I've never met a mafia guy who's not against wiretapping. I've never <laughs> met a mafia guy who's not in favor of strong personal privacy mm-hmm. laws. And I've been bored for hours by mob guys whining about the alleged impingements upon their rights and freedoms by the FBI and the IRS. And so Sal Bergulio said to me, Dan, come on up. <laughs> so I went up to Local 560, and I was sitting in the waiting room. And then Sal Bergulio comes through the door along with Bill Buffalino, who was his attorney from Detroit. Bill Buffalino was representing everybody. So he said, you want to have lunch with us? And I said, sure. And so we went down. We got into Bergoglio's car. Uh, he pressed a button. It opened up the, the, the garage at Local 560. We went across the street. Literally, we drove across the street. There was a restaurant there. We went in. We went to the back room, and there was Gabe Bergoglio there. So the, the three of us had lunch. The four of us had lunch. The Bergoglio brothers, Bill Buffalino and me. And he said, let's go back to the Union Hall. We can do this interview. So we went back, and I'm sorry, Steve Andretta was with us too. Steve Andretta was there with Gabe Bergoglio. So it was the scene at the restaurant was um, Bergoglio and I and Bill Buffalino walked in, and we saw Steve Andretta and Gabe Bergoglio sitting at the table. So it was the five of us who had lunch together. And then after lunch, we went back to the Union Hall, and Sam, Sammy Provenzano, Tony Provenzano's brother, who was president of Local 560 at the time, joined us. Uh, Tom Andretta couldn't make it, but they put me on the phone with him while we were while we were having our conversation. What did he say? Well, everybody denied everything. Um, I think that when you, but they were giving me different answers as to where they were at that time. Also, I had really never thought about I, ne- I had really never thought that Russell Buffalino was at the epicenter of this thing. It was they who called my attention to to Bill Buffalino. Uh, Steve Andretta told me about, I did not understand how Picardo had gotten his information. You mean to, so you mean to Russell? Andretta explained it to me. I mean, in his denial, he, he explained it to me. I did not understand how Sal Bergoglio got put into the trick bag until he explained it to me. Now, they denied any participation. Um, in fact, Bill Buffalino wound up blaming the CIA for, mm-hmm. killing, for killing Jimmy Hoffa. And uh, but it was a three and a half hour interview wow. on tape. What were they like? You know, uh, nice guys. I mean, <laughs> you know, what can I say? They were very. I think uh, Bergulio was a little skeptical of me, but he was the one I ended up getting along with best. I stayed. I had one uh, subsequent conversation with Tom uh, with Steve Andretta, um, and then I had I think three or four subsequent conversations with uh, Sal Bergulio, leading it right up to the month before I was murdered. 
That was in 1978 uh, in Mulberry Street in Italy. I mean, do you... Exactly. It was th- murdered on March 21st, I think. It was mm-hmm. March 21st, 1978. And I, my last conversation with him was mid-February wow. of 1978, like about a month earlier. Did you? Did he was clearly tired and weary, and he was clearly... Mm-hmm. Scared, and he was clearly upset. And he, I, I didn't sense that he was thinking about flipping or anything like that, which was the allegation. And I had never heard that Sal Bergoglio was even considering flipping. But I just, th- I think that somebody had just decided, why take a chance with mm-hmm. this guy? And so they decided to, to eliminate him from the scene. What do you think? Or did you buy anything that they were telling you? I mean, would you thread the needle? How would you put it together? Well, I went there to talk about their civil rights being violated. I did. I, after we got through all of that, then we started getting down to the nitty-gritty of the Hoffa case and where they were and what they were doing. And all of them claimed to have been in New Jersey at that time. See, I think that see, I think that the Hoffa murder was a three-act drama with different characters in each act. I think the overall key witness in the in the Hoffa murder is is Ralph Picardo and continues to be. I think with regard to characters and everything else, he is still the key guy. With regard to Act One, the pickup of Hoffa, I think that Frank Sheeran's version of events is as good as anything I've heard. I know as a fact that the key to me is is the is his is his his going moving flying over the Lake Erie to from Port Clinton, Ohio mm-hmm. to the Pontiac Airport. The Pontiac Airport to me was key because I had long had information, and I wrote the Hoffa Wars, you know, 26 years. I published the Hoffa Wars 26 years before Sheeran's uh, memoir came out. But I had, in the book, I was talking about Pontiac Airport and that McMaster had picked up Tony Provenzano uh, at the Pontiac Airport on uh, uh, very close to the time of Hoffa's murder, either the day before, like the day before or the day of. And so Act One, with, with Frank Sheeran's explanation of how he came to come to Detroit, that made sense to me. I was so impressed with it. When you first broke the story of Charlie's book back in 2004, Four, yeah. and, um, and I said at that time, I said, you know, I think that Sheeran's story is the most important break in the case since Hoffa disappeared. It's just that I don't believe that he was the one who killed Jimmy Hoffa. And so I, uh, so then Act Two is the the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. I do not believe Frank Sheeran's story about that, not at all. Uh, I think I think Sheeran was the one who lured him into the car. I think Hoffa would have gotten into a car with Sheeran, but I at the same time I do not believe that Sheeran is correct on the people he says who were in the car. I believe that Vito Giacalone, who was the brother of Tony Giacalone, who along with Tony Provenzano were two of the mob guys that Hoffa was supposed to meet at the Red Fox that day. I think Vito Giacalone was in the car. I think he, and I have been told that from uh, somebody I believe was a direct participant in all of this. Yeah, in our show, uh, Riddle, uh, Keith Corbett, who is the former head of the Organized Crime Strike Force, believes that. Well, I think Vito's key in this whole thing, and really he has, I think all of us have sort of, uh, sort of missed that boat. Like I said, I'm trying, I've been talking about it since the 50th anniversary, since the uh, since the 40th anniversary in '75, in 2015. So what I have, so that, so in part two, the murder of the body. I, 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 my key witness on that is a guy named Don Wells, and Don Wells, whom I have interviewed, um, was the key source for the 2006 dig. 
in um, in Milford Township, um, in Milford Township, Michigan. And can you say explain who he was? Or is Don Wells was was very close to Roland McMaster, whom I had suspected of being behind the disposal of Hoffa's body from the outset, from day one. After my initial source called me while I went, on my first day with NBC News, um, Don Wells was in prison at the time, and he told the FBI about what he thought was Hoffa's burial. And so I, um, we, we, we weren't get, being given very much information, and the FBI was not releasing the search warrant upon which it, it based its dig. They did an excavation of this farm, which had been owned by Roland McMaster at the time. And they did not release the search warrant, so we didn't know the details of it. And the details that were coming out were kind of, kind of funny, kind of, kind of unbelievable. So I went to Wells, whom I had interviewed back in 1976, because he was so close to McMaster, and I talked about him in the Hoffa Wars, in fact. And um, I mean, like you know, 40 years before he became famous. And uh, Wells told me that basically, you know, here here was the situation. They he was with Tony Provenzano and Roland McMaster the night before the murder. He believed that Tony Provenzano was actually present at the scene of the murder, which is consistent with what the FBI had been saying, was that, that Steve Adretta was in New Jersey at the time of the murder, uh, uh, giving Tony Provenzano the alibi that he desperately needed. Remember, they put Steve Andretta into prison for contempt because he refused to testify about his whereabouts, specific whereabouts, on that day. And... So I believe that Tony Provenzano was not only in Detroit the night before the murder, as Don says, because because Don was with him, but I believe that he, along with McMaster and Stan Barr, the head of Gateway Transportation, I believe that Tony Provenzano was actually present for the murder. And I believe that the murder took place in either one or two places. I think it either took place on that farm, or I believe that it took place at McMaster's home, which was literally five minutes away from the, the Red Fox restaurant. As the FBI, have they investigated that, that home? The FBI were the ones that took me to the home. Okay. <laughs> they, were the, they were the ones that took it to me back, at, back in 1976. They, took, they said, here, we want you to know this. I mean, you'll see, even in the Hoffa files, you'll see a lot of reports about me in there, because I was a freelance writer. I had received money from the Hoffa Reward Fund from Jimmy Hoffa, Jr., and then I joined the Free Press, and then I became, you know, part of the world of journalism at that point after I had left NBC. NBC wanted me to stay and just start doing research on general assignment stories. Like I said, I was a kid at the time. I was 25 and in 1975. And so, but I wanted to stay in the Hoffa case. Mm-hmm. I really thought that I had something going here with this McMaster thing. And so I, I stayed. I developed sources in the FBI. I, the FBI had done a couple of reports about about my, my my information about McMaster and his goon squad, and so it led then to what I believe happened in Act Three, and that's the disposal of the body. Once again, Picardo had said that Hoffa's body was stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a Gateway transportation truck, and shipped to an unknown destination in in New Jersey. Why keep the body intact? Why move it to New Jersey? Because, as has been explained to me, the Provenzano people wanted to keep the body. They wanted to keep it. The, the reason was you keep the body as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You've been indicted for murder. 
you have you're facing some serious charges or something like that and you want a deal and and they say what do you have to bargain with i can give you jimmy hoffa's body what where do you think it went well the fbi questioned picardo strenuously about that and they said they said um based on your based on your experiences based on your relationships and associations with the Provenzano crowd, where would they take the body? And Picardo replied that they would take it to a landfill in Jersey City called Brother Moscato's Dump. And it was run, run by a guy named Phil Moscato, who was an alleged associate of the Genovese crime family, very, very close to Tony Provenzano, the best friend of Sal Bergoglio. And so I was doing a story years later on a payoff that a federal judge had received from some mafia guys. And the mafia guy who was the alleged bag man, the payoff man, was Phil Moscato. And I said, I said, I know who this guy is. This is the guy from the Hoffa case. So I picked up the phone and I called Moscato. I wanted to interview him about this corrupt judge. And so he said, you know, he talked to me on the phone and I said, may I come and see you? And he said, sure. So I drove up to New Jersey, and I went to go see Phil Moscato, the Phil Moscato, Moscato's dump. And I had my tape recorder on, and we were talking. And I said, you know, the first time I heard about you was about the Hoffa case. And he said, well, I was there at that grand jury in early December 1975. I said, you were there? He says, yeah. I said, did you take the fifth like everybody else? He said, of course I did. Everybody took the fifth. I said, well, tell me how it happened. And he, the tape recorder is on the table. We are listening to the tape. And Moscato tells me, in no uncertain terms, that he and Sal Bergoglio had buried the body. Mm. Did he say and where? So, I'm a little unclear about that. Where, okay. I'm a little unclear about, about where. Uh, you know, uh, Phil was very good to me. He never asked me for anything. He, but he gave me information at the rate that a kosher butcher would give out pork sausages. <laughs> he was a he, he was a tight-lipped guy, and my relationship with Phil lasted for like about seven years mm. while I was trying to drag things out of him. You know, my last meeting with him I, before he died, I told him I wasn't going to reveal any of this information until after he was gone because he was very sick at the time when mm. I first met him in 2007. He ended up living for seven years until and he died in 2014. But then in 2015, I then, in my 50th anniversary story about the case, I, I then revealed what, mm -hmm. what he had told me. And it was, and it was um, Moscato who told me that Vito Giacalone was a key guy in the case. And I asked him specifically about Frank Sharon. I said, tell me about Frank Sharon. And he said, Frank Sharon was nowhere to be found on this case. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, Frank Sharon had nothing to do with the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. And I asked him about whether he was the guy who lured him into the car, as I had believed uh, when I first learned about Sharon back in, uh, I guess it was in the fall of 1977. And, uh, and I called Sharon, and I talked to him. Uh, he didn't tell me anything. You know, he lied to me, of course. But he, but I, I, was, I was trying to figure out exactly what the role of Sheeran was, and Moscato would only tell me he was not involved in the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. He says, I'm not going to say anything about my best friend Sal Bergoglio. You draw whatever conclusion you want about that. 
but it, Frank Sheeran had nothing to do with this. Your view is that it was Sabagulio who was the shooter. Um, the house no, on Beaverland. The house on Beaverland and the blood pattern that we found, as you know, the uh, there were uh, 50 samples. The FBI found 28 were blood. They were only able to get DNA from two, one an unknown male, another another inconclusive. Uh, what does that tell you and what does that tell you about Sharon telling me he was the shooter? And I, see, I Charlie. believe that I believe that I believe that Sharon was knowledgeable about this. I believed that he was an eyewitness to the murder. Remember, Sheeran, I had, I had alleged that Sheeran was involved in the murder in the Hoffa Wars in 1978, 26 years before his memoir come out, came out. And I was, I was very appreciative of the fact that Charlie and, and Sheeran were as kind to me as they were in their book, saying pretty nice things about me, because I knew I was out there on this thing. I mean, I was out there sticking my neck out all over the place on this case as an independent without any protection whatsoever. And... So I appreciated that, but I understood the reason why Frank had stepped up. It had, to me, it had nothing to do with honesty. He had lost his book contract. He had been saying that Sal Bergoglio was the killer from pretty much when he started talking about this thing, when he was back, when he was telling the story about this was a Vietnamese hit team mm -hmm. who had been involved in this thing. I mean, you know, Sheeran was doing another book with another author, John Zeitz. And John Zeiss wasn't a professional writer, and he certainly wasn't a professional man, as Charlie Brand is. And I, I, I am second to none of my admiration for Charlie for what he was able to drag out of Sheeran. But to me, this was all about money. It was from the beginning. You know, it was, it was suspect to me. Plus the information. John Zeiss, before he died, he gave me everything that he has, including the videos about what Sheeran said. And I can assure you there are multiple inconsistencies between what Sharon said back then and what he said later on when the money was on the table. Sure. Well, when I met him, he was, I mean, he was blunt and he was direct about it. Um, then how would you explain the blood pattern in that, in the exact pattern that, that he knew if in fact the murder yeah. was there at that place, then he knew it was there at that place when Sal Bergoglio killed him. That's the way I would describe it. Also there's, you know, he has been inconsistent whether he shot him with one, once or twice. He's been inconsistent about that. I have. No, he said twice with me, with me. With me, he says twice, but I, I, I have him saying once. Okay, so your position is that Sal Bergoglio was the shooter. Absolutely, no answers or buts about it. Yeah. If the FBI, well, you talk about the FBI files. Is it your view that they should be released unredacted? There are thousands of pages, heavily redacted. The FBI has not released them. Should the government? release everything so you can find out about the informants, find out about what they claim, find out about the different stories, and so the truth can come out. Well, David Ashenfelder had done an FOIA along with Barbara Krantzer, Hoffa's daughter, uh, to the FBI. They were able to get 17,000 documents, as I recall, uh, 5,000 of which were unredacted. And when David Ashenfelder received you know, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Detroit Free Press, received the information. He gave one set of the files. He got two sets, three sets. He gave, gave one, kept one for himself. He gave one to Barbara, and he gave one to me. Um, I've gone through the unredacted, the 5,000 unredacted files, and they are amazing. No answers or buts about it. There's a lot of good stuff in it, but nothing breathtaking, nothing earth-shaking, nothing that somebody who knows a lot about this case is going to be shocked by. It does concern me that some sources are named in there. 
who, who could be at risk, even at this late date. Um, also, um, with regard to the unredacted, there are several pages in there. I would like to see the full, you know, the full unredacted version of it. Uh, the um, the Hoffex report is redacted. Uh, I have the unredacted version. I'm sure you, you do. You have the unredacted version. Yeah, I do. Version? We have the unredacted the version. Unredacted, even the section on McMaster. Uh, I have to go look at it again. There is a, the, even on the unredacted version of the Hoffex report. The 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 section on on McMaster is redacted. So, is it your view that all this should come out? Absolutely. I, I would. I would say you have to protect sources. No answers or buts about it. Confidential sources, people who gave information to the bureau, especially those still alive, who. Um, and the, I mean, how many are there? With the with the with the understanding of confidentiality and non-disclosure. Yeah. Uh, understandable. How many are still alive? I mean, I mean, the, there may not be that many, at all, if at all. Well. You know, again, it'd be a case-by-case basis situation. I, I don't know that, um, you know, I still believe, I believe in my heart of hearts that this case will be solved. I still believe it. Um, I, I allow myself every 10 years to be conned by somebody who has a new <laughs> and hot lead about this case. I got conned in 2009 by somebody who, it was a very logical progression of events cast of characters was right, the people were right, the, the situation was right, and I, I spent two weeks looking at this. I don't know what this guy got out of this. I mean, um, uh, but he, uh, but I was into this for, you know, for almost two weeks where I was trying to, I thought that in the end I was actually going to get Hoffa's body, and, uh, and I'm in the midst of a situation right now where I have been given, um, and this is a Jersey Lee, this is in New Jersey, mm-hmm. Uh, I have been given a very, very good um, situation, which I'm now <laughs> jumping through all kinds of hoops right now in order to do it. But I, I'm, I consider myself to be Ahab and the Hoffa case to be my white whale. <laughs> what? I, I, it is important for me to. There is no justice in this world am I, if I'm not at the denouement of this <laughs> of the situation in the end. Dan, what do you think it'll take? Will it, Will it take the release of all the files unredacted? Will it take? retesting the DNA on the blood uh, evidence that we found in the house. I think the DNA, I think what you, the extraordinary thing that you and, and Charlie and Ed Barnes and, you know, other great reporters did with regard to, you know, really doing some tremendous detective work and, and doing what you did at the Beaverland house. I, you know, I think that has to be followed up to the max, you know, I think that to everyone's, to everyone's satisfaction. So re- retest the DNA. Is this, is this Hoffa's blood or not? You have the DNA from mm-hmm. Hoffa's hairbrush uh, to match with whatever blood is found, and um, it is important, I think, that uh, that this be done. With regard to the files, there are certain files that are important, certain files that are not. And um, what do you, which one would you? Want, what's the most important one to you that should be released? Well, the most important ones are the ones who are the, you know, the the information about Roland McMaster, the information about Frank Sharon, the information about the Regulios, the information about the Andrettas, the information about Picardo, the information about the Moscato, uh, the information about those who were named in the Hoffax report as the top suspects, as well as some of their underlings, like in McMaster's case, Larry McHenry and Jim Shaw, who, who were two of his goons, whom I had been told by my source on the first day that I was on the Hoffa case for NBC, 
uh, whom I was told was, were behind the bombing of Dick Fitzsimmons' car 20 days before Hoffa disappeared. Like I said, I, I believe that if you found out who was behind the violence in Local 299 before Hoffa disappeared, and I interviewed every single one of the victims of those acts of violence, no one was killed, but everyone was, you know, either they lost property or they were injured themselves. I mean, George Roxborough got shot in the face with a shotgun and survived. And um, and so I I believe that all that information should come out as well. I would love to see all of that information. So with regard to, to what you were trying to do, Eric, trying to get the DNA once and for all determine whether this is Hoffa's blood, I completely support that. I, I think that should be done to everyone's satisfaction. And number two, with regard to the release of the files, again, with certain discretion, appreciating the you know, the, 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 the identity of certain key informants to make sure they're not placed at risk. Yeah, I, I'm totally in favor of, of bringing all of that information out. Yeah, I, I, us too, and that's our call. And finally, Dan, you have lived, lived with this for, for so long. Um, what has this whole journey been like for you? Uh, every time there's something new, you are so deep in it, and you have the unbelievable distinction of actually sitting down and meeting with uh, the suspects. And taping them for three and a half hours, yeah, and having them on tape for three and a half hours. Um, it's been, it's been. Oh, I mean, it's not like this has been my whole life. I mean, I've done, you know, nine mm-hmm. books, you know, about ready to release my 10th, which has absolutely nothing to do with any of this stuff. Um, I, you know, it has been an interesting journey, let's say. Uh, but it, it, again, I'm going to consider this one, my, if I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to consider this one of my great failings that... <laughs> I was able to solve this case because I have people come up with me saying, I, hey, hey, I heard that uh, that Jimmy Hoffa's body is uh, in the basement of the White House. Well, you know, sad for me. I, it, it, that's as good as anything I've come up with so far. And, um, and so, you know, I think this case needs to be solved. This is a situation, Eric, where a very, very infamous person, Jimmy Hoffa, who my view is a real anti-hero, a real villain, uh, but very recognizable, very famous. Uh, a person was snatched from a public place in broad daylight and was never seen again. To me, that is a case, no matter what the cost, that has to be solved once and for all. This is the biggest hit in mob history, and this needs to be solved. And I plan to be trying to solve that murder until... You know, the day I kick. <laughs> Dan Modia, uh, spectacular work all these years, my, my admiration. Okay. And Great thanks. Keep up the good work. At, and respect, as you know. And, and the book, uh, fascinating, published in 1978, but it is still uh, relevant to today. The Hoffa Wars, Teamsters, Rebels, Politicians, and the Mob. It's all in there. Dan Modia. Dan, as always, my thanks. Pleasure, Eric. Thanks for listening today. Check out all the other Riddle podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And just Google my name, put Frank Sherwin next to it, or Jimmy Hoffa, and you can see the other articles we've written. And you can keep up with my reporting on Fox News. I'm Eric Sean. Thanks again for Riddle, the podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.